In this very spooky episode, I have some scary guests on financial entertainers, financial gurus, government clerks, and IBC noisemakers. We had fun and I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And we have a special episode for you today. This is the uh, 2021 Halloween episode. We're trying to have fun. Actually, we are having fun in the midst of all the spooky things that are going on in the big wide world. Um, I'm excited because we have uh, some very special guests on today. We have several. We have financial entertainers. We have financial gurus. We have, uh, you know, governmental clerks, noisemakers. And uh, like I said, we're having fun. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. But before we get going, a little uh, note of history, right? And uh, I wanted to bring up Pope Stephen VI. In 897 AD, Pope Stephen VI digs up his dead predecessor, Pope Formosus. I think Pope Formosus died several months prior. And uh, Pope Stephen exhumes him, his body, his corpse, dresses the corpse up in uh, full ecclesiastical regalia and puts him on trial, right? Tries him, the corpse, and convicts him of heresy. That's about what we have going on in the big wide world today. Well, it seems like there was a dispute over banking and business, all right? The dispute kind of revolved around the uh, oldest profession in the world and where those cash flows would go. All right. thought it was very interesting. This argument of banking and who's controlling the banking function is very old, very, very old. And this is just one example how, you know, things can go wrong. All right. And some of the shenanigans that come from it. Okay. Our first guest is um, the financial entertainer. Welcome to the show. There's no need to say anything. I think I understand exactly who you are and what you do and what you promote. Okay. But we appreciate you being here. And my gosh, you look nice today. All right. Thanks for taking time. All right. You know, the financial entertainer, they're typically found on the radio or uh, public TV. They uh, don't have a license, right? So they can, you know, spew their information and their advice with the immunity right because they don't have a license they're really really good salespeople, though i mean uh, probably the most well-known is a great advertiser you know salesperson you know i don't know what it costs to run a big syndicated radio program across the country and all the big markets in the u.s and then all of the advertising that is sold in each of the markets but good job sir very good job of course, you know, the arguments that they promote are very old. They can't lay them to rest. You know, they just dig them up, rehash them, and over and over and over with uh, drive-by innuendos and insults, uh, keep the argument going, right? These arguments. <clears throat> but some of the whole hallmarks are, uh, you know, they're, they're arrogant, they're, they're kind of a bully, very arrogant. Did I mention arrogant? <laughs> Condescending, you know, they abuse our listeners and the the preachers and the pastors and the congregation. But there's a certain amount of the Stockholm Cindy's that love it. The financial entertainers always favor the market. They want you to put your money, your capital 
at risk in the market. You know, because the market only goes one way. I'm buying Strasse, never goes down. All right, nothing to see here. Just go find a 12% annualized long-term growth stock mutual fund. Yeah, and then cherry pick your time periods, right, to prove your point of that's where your money should go. And I think I did a, a PowerPoint presentation on that years ago, and I think it's still available. What, what the equivalent of that 12% long-term growth stock mutual fund is, I don't remember the, I should probably put it in the show notes, the name of that, but... They always favor the market, right? <clears throat> and then uh, they, of course, when it comes to life insurance, only always, and always, 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 quote, unquote, buy term and invest the difference, right? Number one, it's the cheapest <clears throat> way to buy death benefit. Yes, that's true. The cost of insurance, well, I don't want to say it is the cheapest, but it is one of the cheapest ways to buy death benefit, Right. Will it be enforced when you graduate at natural mortality? Yeah, who knows? Um, <clears throat> what happens if you buy a 30-year term, you know, in your 30s or your 20s, and then you become uninsurable? You know, you had a couple of stents or you got overweight and diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol. And then when that term runs out and you want some death benefit and you can't qualify for it, Oh, well, you should have been following the other half of the program and investing like no others, right? Living like no others so you can live like no others, right? And then if that doesn't happen, right? Because it's very true. I mean, it's very real that most people don't invest the difference when they buy into this 100-year-old argument of buy term and invest the difference. Most people don't. Some do, of course. Um, so if you don't do that, right? And you didn't become a millionaire, and you still have a need for death benefit, you know, it's always the consumer's fault, right? It was the customer's fault. Well, they didn't follow the whole program. Well, isn't that convenient? Sure. I mean, I understand discipline is required no matter what program you follow, right? If you don't have discipline, you know, Nelson said, you know, you might as well go dig a hole and jump in it and have someone cover you up, right? Whatever you do requires discipline. I agree. But... Um, you know, early in my career, back in 1991, I think is when I got my permanent life insurance license. And I had other financial licenses, still have other financial licenses to this day. But I bought into that program, buy term and invest the rest, right? I mean, they didn't create it. A.L. Williams didn't create it. Um, you know, Crown Financial didn't create it. it. It was, I don't really know who created it, but I got books from the 1930s that talk about it. And, and the, it's the same old argument. You know, they, everything is focused on a rate of return, no question. And then the idea that if I buy life insurance, I can't invest or I can't do other things is uh, not true. But if you narrow down an argument on one point, you want to live or die on one point, um, it's a weak argument. The idea that, that, you know, if I buy life insurance, if I practice the infinite banking concept, I'm paying high premium. And I'm trying to get a, a high cash value, you know, without, you know, jeopardizing the integrity of the policy. I'm not legitimate, correct foundation, correct structure. I'm going to build capital and I have access to that capital. I can go invest in whatever I wish to. Right? So the idea that you can only do one or the other or buying life insurance precludes everything else or excludes everything else. So it's a, a zero sum is not true. Okay, but it sounds good, right? <clears throat> because you pay those big high premiums and, oh my gosh, the insurance agent's making commissions and anybody that makes a commission's got to be a bad guy, right? 
but of course, you know, all of the advertising that is sold across the country for big money, right? big money. Um, and then all the fees that you charge the endorsed local provider, and then all the fees that you want your customers to pay in those long-term growth stock mutual fund accounts. Uh, those are okay. I mean, don't, don't, don't talk about those. Don't look at those, right? Because they're not commissions unless, you know, they're going to buy your cheap term insurance that can't convert into anything um, through the company that, you know, you endorse and enjoy revenues from those commissions. They're not very much because of this term. Those are okay. Right? And all of the other revenue streams are okay. It's okay for you to be a capitalist. Just don't call them commissions, whatever you do, of course. And then, of course, you got to disparage the life insurance agent's character. No question, because they're a scoundrel, right, because they uh, earn commissions. Hmm. That's old, too. You know, Gary North and all his lackeys, they promoted that for years, and they did a pretty good job. But it all boils down to is grace for me and law for you. Right. Yeah. Grace for me and law for you. Of course. Of course. What's new? And then uh, judging others by your own character. Okay. My encouragement is listen, don't make financial decisions based on sound bites. Don't do it. Go ahead and take the opportunity. Take the time. Make the time to investigate for yourself this idea of becoming your own banker, that you can become your own banker. Explore the idea that that you can control the banking function. And if you take the time and explore it, right, and you determine that it's worth implementing in your life, get to it. If you decide, no, nah, it's too complicated or I'm not interested, no problem. But just take the time. Don't make decisions based on drive-by innuendos, soundbite accusations, right? Just because somebody is arrogant, they come across confident and they're bullying the listener, you know, it doesn't mean they're right. Okay, but it's a hallmark, right? No license. Um, commissions are bad. The character of anybody who really does anything other than what they do, mainly life insurance agents, it's bad. And you got to buy term and invest the difference. And then, of course, they've got to villainize the life insurance companies, except for the ones they promote, right? They uh, have to, I mean, they just have to villainize, you know, the life insurance company's got to be a bad guy. And from my position, my opinion, what I've come to understand and believe, it's it's uh, almost like the mutual life insurance companies are against the world when it comes to financial markets. And that pool of mutual companies is shrinking, as we speak, right? Wonder why? Well, when you look, the mutual companies are with whole life, dividend paying whole life, dividend, you know, participating policies. Um, it's a, produces a, a lesser return comparatively to term insurance and universal life insurance for the insurance companies, <clears throat> right? So fewer and fewer companies want to make less whenever they can go right term and universal life and get a higher rate of return. So I'm just saying that the uh, idea of becoming your own banker uh, with mutual companies is worth investigating. Why a mutual company, James? Well, because the policy owner is the owner of the company. So all companies 
in the free world and when we practice capitalism, companies are in business for two things, for two fundamental reasons. Number one, they want to make a profit. How do they make a profit? They provide services and products to their consumers, right? Well, if they don't do a good job and they don't get a government subsidy, they're going to be out of business, right? So they're incentivized to deliver good products and good services. Well, who's the owner of these mutual companies? Oh, it's a policyholder. Hmm, okay. So when the company has a positive financial experience in a given year, some of that revenue is shared with the owner through a dividend. Yeah, okay. But then, you know, they also argue that, you know, dividends are just a return of a premium, overpayment of premium. Yep, that's how it's classified in the Internal Revenue Code. And that's okay. I don't care how you classify it. Just pay me a dividend. Yeah, well, if dividends are bad, then you shouldn't buy dividend-producing stocks, right? So it's okay to, like, buy Home Depot stock, right? Ownership position um, and not receive a dividend? Or would you want to receive a dividend? So would you want to be a consumer of and an owner of the same company? Hmm. Yeah, I think so, especially when it comes to life insurance. I don't know about the other companies. But the insurance companies have to be villainized, right? It's uh, very common to hear, well, you know, the life insurance company keeps your cash value when you die. No kidding, right? Because the cash value is the cash value. The death benefit is the death benefit. Now, now, there is a universal life product, option A, level death benefit, option B, increasing death benefit. It's not complicated. Who's paying for that increasing cost of the death benefit? You, the policyholder. Okay, so let's don't cloud the issue or overcomplicate it because it really doesn't have to be. So what is a cash value? Talked about this many times. I've talked about these things many times on the uh, free, no cost videos that are available on my channel. It's okay to take time and learn or thoroughly vet the idea. Just check it out. See if this is an idea worthy of your implementation. If it is, great. Get to it. If it's not, great. No problem. Right? The cash value is the net present value of a future death benefit minus future premiums. So whenever you die, who keeps the cash value? Oh, wait a minute. The cash value is the net present value of a future death benefit. So when the death benefit is paid, that death benefit is made up partially of the cash value. Is that complicated? No. We don't even have to get it above third grade math. But let's talk about an example that I like to use. Let's say you have a home that's worth $500,000 market value. You have $300,000 in equity. You sell your home for $500,000. Who, pray tell, financial entertainer, who kept that $300,000 in equity. What mean, evil, dirty scoundrel kept that money? Because we need to hunt them down, find them, and string them up, right? Put them on trial. <laughs> okay. well, well, who was it? Was it the seller's agent that earns that dirty commission? All the hard work. You real estate agents, you realtors, you know what I'm talking about. Hard work. You earn every penny that you earn. And good job. Keep doing it. Okay. Was it was it the buyer's agent or the seller's agent? Who kept that? Was it the uh, lender, the buyer's lender? Did they keep that $300,000 in equity? 
Was it the seller's lender? Who kept the $300,000, Mr. Entertainer? Oh, yeah, it's silent, of course. Uh, it was in the sales price of the home or the property. Okay. Well, if I had a $500,000 death benefit with a cash value whole life insurance policy of $300,000 in cash value, I graduate. My beautiful wife receives $500,000 income tax-free, might I add. Who do we need to string up that kept that $300,000? Oh, it was part of the death benefit. Oh, okay. So these drive-by accusations, when you get all revved up and triggered, and by all means, I know how to get triggered, okay? When you boil them down, it's it's like cloak and dagger, smoke and mirrors, right? You got to vilify somebody to buy into your program. Okay. Well, it obviously works, right? They're going to keep doing it. Why? Because it pays, right? Yeah. Somebody's getting paid very well, right, Mr. Entertainer? Yeah. So why would they quit? They're not incentivized to quit. They're going to continue. Why? Because it pays well. Okay. Fair enough. Another one, very common, is why would you ever pay interest to borrow your own money? Seems like a legitimate, fair question, doesn't it? Yeah, but it can't hold up under scrutiny and consideration. So it's either ignorant, right? Or there is knowledge, and then if there's knowledge there and they're not ignorant, then it becomes a moral issue because then it's a character issue. Okay, let's be clear. Whenever you pay a premium to a life insurance company, it is not your money. You're fulfilling an obligation, at least partially, because a premium is an obligation to the insured or the policy holder, uh, the policy owner. You buy life insurance, it's a contract. All right, you're going to pay a premium. That's an obligation, right? And the life insurance company is going to assume the risk of you dying too soon, right? Because we're all trying to work and accumulate money for, you know, passive income time in the future, for example. So if you die and you didn't have the time to accumulate all that capital, the death benefit is replacing that future income that died with you and paid tax-free to your beneficiary, right? Now, along the way, if you have uh, whole life insurance, and I understand universal life does have an account value, and it's also called permanent, but I'm not talking about universal life. We'll talk about that later with all the other financial gurus, okay? I'm talking about permanent whole life insurance that has a cash value issued by a mutual company that pays dividends. Okay, I have that cash value. You know, there's a loan provision in that life insurance contract where the owner has the right to collateralize that cash value. Hmm. Okay. So whenever I pay a premium, it, that premium is no longer mine. It is not my money. It is the property of the life insurance company. Now, within that contract, a portion of that premium creates a cash value and the cash value is guaranteed to grow over time. So as that cash value accumulates, that contract has a loan provision in it. So I can name near demand one service form, one multi-purpose service form. I can even go online now and request a loan. And I'm not asking the company to approve the loan. 
I'm not asking them anything. I'm telling them, this is what I want, and this is where I want you to send it. That's the only thing they ask me, if they ask me anything. Well, do you want us to mail you the check? Do you want us to you know, deposit the check into your checking account? Um, so let's be clear. That is not my money. Right? So I'm not paying interest on my own money. But it's okay if I did practice EBA, economic value added, it's okay for me to value my capital if I'm going to value the third-party lender's capital that didn't exist until I signed the dotted line, right? I mean, why would I pay a credit card 10, 12, 14, 15, 20, 30% or a line of credit 5, 6, 8, 10, and 15% or a HELOC at 3.5, 4, 4.5, 5 or higher and I won't value my own capital? Yeah, there's some kind of a conflict of philosophy right there. Okay, so it's not my money. When I pay a premium, the life insurance company must put that money to work to meet future obligations. Well, what are those, James? Well, I'm going to graduate. You are too. When? I don't know. And if I get mad and quit anywhere along the way and there's a cash value, that's an obligation to the life insurance company. If I live and get mad and quit, it's an obligation to the life insurance company if I die to pay the death benefit. So when I pay a premium, they have to put that capital to work to meet future obligations. I'm not even getting close to third grade math. I'm not. And and so if they have to put that capital to work to meet future obligations and my i have first position access to that cash value as a policyholder they cannot deny me a loan if the capital is there the cash value is there i have a right to that i can get mad and quit or i can collateralize it requesting a loan right they they have no choice they have to fulfill the loan well if they've had that money deployed, right, earning to meet their future obligations, shouldn't at least at a minimum, shouldn't they charge me whatever that capital was earning to meet those future obligations? Of course. Now, wait a minute. I'm the owner of the company, too. If I'm a policyholder of a mutual company, do I want to steal peas? Do I want to practice uh, dishonesty? Do I want to practice theft? Wouldn't it be theft if I got a loan from the life insurance company? For me, no, it wouldn't be stealing from me. Well, yeah, it would because I'm the owner of the company. And then I would be stealing from all of the other policyholders that own that company because it's a mutual company owned by the policyholders. All right, but listen, let's don't get all emotional about it. That's just financial, okay? <laughs> the point is, it's not my money. The company has to charge an interest rate on the loan. Where else are you going to go borrow free money? Well, maybe call the financial entertainer or the financial gurus. Maybe they'll loan you money at no cost. Maybe your credit card will lend you money at no cost beyond that first you know, gimmick of 0% balance transfer. All right, where else are you going to go? Besides your family. And then that's really not even long. There's one thing that um, I was told last week in a conversation with a client. We were just talking about loans and things. And I said, listen, you don't loan your family money. Those are gifts. You don't lend them money. And he said, oh, that's a financial entertainer says that. And I didn't know that. So this financial, this corpse of a financial entertainer, I think that um, he agrees with that or promotes the same idea. Okay. I don't want to chase too many rabbits. I don't want to digress. 
the interest that you pay to the life insurance company, you're paying them interest because you're borrowing their money. You're not borrowing your money. So let's be clear. So that is in fact true. And so if you know that, then it's not ignorance, right? If you say it out of ignorance, you know, we can, okay, you don't really know. So you have an opportunity to educate yourself. Okay. Well, if you know, and you say stuff like that anyway, then it's a moral issue. My opinion. Yep. And I'm entitled to it. Just like you're entitled to yours. And if you're a financial advisor or guru, I'm not interested in your opinion, but I do appreciate you listening. Then, of course, it's always get out of debt first. Get out of debt first. Then start saving or investing for your future income or what have you. Oh, great. It's like I I have a a Scotch-Irish background. And so I love Scottish history, right? And uh, Welsh history and... Uh, Irish history and so Mel Gibson made this great movie I'm not saying it's historically accurate because it's not uh, but it was a great movie you know uh, Braveheart and so this one particular financial entertainer takes a clip out of that movie fabulous movie did I say I like the movie I love it okay <laughs> and uh, while Longshanks has uh, uh, William Wallace strung out you know gonna disembowel him you know and he screams out in the movie freedom you know it's a great clip i get it i love it and so it's great marketing so they have this freedom friday or used to um where people can call in they finally got out of debt freedom and and you know and good job on the discipline of getting out of debt i'm kudos right you need to get out of debt and if you don't do something who will if not you who dr seuss right if you don't who will Right. Okay. I was listening one Friday going home and uh, I heard the, uh, an older lady in her late fifties, her husband was even older and they're calling in on a Friday. They're so excited. You know, they spent the last however many months getting out of debt and they screamed freedom. And then she said, now we can start saving for retirement. And it was just piercing to the heart. It's like, oh my God, now you're going to start saving for retirement age 57, 58. And it's okay, you know, if, if that's how long it took, if that's how long you waited to get started, by all means get started. But um, sounds like you bought the wrong program for the first 57 or eight years. And now you're going to make all that time up in the next, what, 30? I don't know. Anyway. Can you get out of debt by getting out of debt? Yeah, of course you can. You know, you, uh, I don't know, uh, spend less than you earn, right? There's that discipline. But then what do you do with the capital? Is there a better way? There may be a better way to get out of debt than eating beans and rice, going without, and, and throwing all the money to the debt. You know, now, and I'm not saying there's a lot of uh, illustrations and examples out there how to get out of debt with the infinite banking concept. That's one thing that you can do, no question. Um, I don't adhere to that, right? Like this is what you do to get out of debt. That's one thing that can be done with dividend paying life insurance structured properties to get out of debt, of course. But, you know, if that's what attracts you to this, it's probably not going to end well for you. You know, if you didn't have the... I mean, you just didn't accumulate all that debt because you have so much discipline, right? So if you, you know, go get a HELOC and start a life insurance policy, create a bunch of cash value and borrow against the cash value to go get out of debt, and then all the credit cards are paid off. Now you got an outstanding loan, and 
what what do you think the likelihood of running up all the balances on that credit or on those credit cards are very high okay i digress a little but yeah you shouldn't be beholden to any third-party lender of any form right so you should be out of debt no question let's see i love the idea of trash value though trash value trash value trash value uh but cash is king aren't you saying trash is king you know what i mean it's like trash value trash value and cash and cash and cash it's like man get it straight please don't confuse me bring up ibc to the financial entertainer and it's like oh my gosh ibc's a scam and <laughs> you know it's a gimmick right never combine your investments with your life insurance which i agree with that right? i don't believe you should combine investments and life insurance oh wait a minute life insurance is not an investment it's not okay that's why it's tax-free did they ever any financial entertainer ever ever in your lifetime one time ever mention anything about the banking function and who controls it one time no no they don't not they don't even know what who the who's in the play much less who the characters of the play are they never mention anything about the banking function who's controlling the banking function or the idea that you legitimately can become your own banker and not be dependent upon third-party lenders no but then again did they ever have any original ideas yeah no they didn't all right, well, listen, thanks, Financial Entertainer, for coming on. You're just a small representation of the, you know, the hordes of them that are out there. And, uh, I, and you look good, by the way. You know, you look, you look very nice. So thanks again. All right, on to the next. Okay, in this segment, we have uh, our friend, the Financial Guru. So he's representative of uh, this, you know, the typical financial salesperson. They have a license. Right, and maybe multiple licenses, and maybe designations and affiliations. They pay a lot of money for uh, the right to use these designations and affiliations, and you know. And I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. You know, I mean, they're all, all bad people. I'm not even trying to convey that. Right? I think most financial people have their consumers' uh, best interest at heart, but they, you know, they got to be paid. So, um, they're typically, you know, know know-it-alls. Nobody really wants to hang around them. As a matter of fact, they're probably avoided. But they do have a license, right? And, you know, they buy into the whole idea that, uh, you know, you need a qualified plan to, to invest in. And they have great algorithms and portfolio. They have a special portfolio design. And the market is the end all, the be all, right? When the market's going up, they want all of the prestige and the accolades and the acknowledgement. Hey, look what I'm doing for you. When the market goes down, then it's always like, well, what do you want from me? Right? The whole market's down. Everybody's down. It's only a paper loss. Right? This buy and hold. Well, how do you tell someone in their 70s buy and hold? Right? You're young. You can recover. Um. And then they're always chasing returns. It's always about the return. Return, 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 return. They heavily promote, you know, the tax deduction. Get a tax deduction today, right? So you can uh, 
get a greater rate of return, get a company match. You know, if you do this, if you save at least 10%, by the time you quote unquote retire, you'll be a millionaire, right? And, and you'll, you'll be in a lower tax bracket. Really? Well, which one of those two didn't happen? Never, ever a mention of who's controlling the banking function. You know, if you talk about life insurance, there's only two. It's either term insurance or universal life stock companies. Uh, it's never whole life insurance. It's never whole life insurance with a mutual company, or rarely is it. You know, um, there's a better way. There's always a better way. You can get a higher rate of return with universal life, variable universal life. Um, you know, it, it, the the just the story just rarely changes right it reminds me though i was thinking you know I, I did a little prep for the show okay which i don't normally do i normally just walk in and sit down and talk i was born and raised in fort worth texas right now we currently live about 20 miles south of fort worth but back in the day i, I don't know how far i'm going back it's a long way probably 20 maybe even 25 years on the north side of fort worth they they uh would set up they, they'd rope off a square and they would put different squares within this big square and they would put a steer inside this area and they'd let him, you know, stay there for a day or two. And wherever he dropped his little cow patties, the squares inside that big square had different company symbols, right? And so the competition, there was a competition. I forget the guy's name, the steer's name, but the competition was the uh all the financial advisors the uh financial gurus that wanted to compete in this contest it was they were to, they were going to devise a portfolio based on what you know their best estimates and guesstimates were and it would be compared with the portfolio that was created by this steer walking around for a couple of days dropping cow patties on different squares that are marked with company stock symbols Think about this, all right? You know how often the steer outperformed the steer's portfolio, outperformed the financial guru's portfolio? I can't remember either, but it happened so often they quit doing it. Why? Because the financial gurus were getting embarrassed. The steer was beating. I read an article, I perused an article a couple of weeks ago where some guy, you know, created a, a mouse trap or a, 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 a mouse maze, um, and he gave... However, he did it, you know, it was a great an engineer probably put it together. But every time the mouse would eat or do different things, it would buy cryptocurrencies, right? Buy or sell. And just the activity of the mouse outperformed most of these crypto guru traders, right? Um, at the end of the day, you can't control the market, neither can they, right? And um, I always like to ask the question, the uh, that, uh, you know, we use diversity to avoid or mitigate or minimize risk. And uh, let me ask you this. Would you agree with me that a definition of risk could be the probability of loss? Yeah, I can agree with that. Okay. So the financial guru wants you to expose all of your capital as much as you can wrap your mind around to the market, right, at risk, the probability of loss, and the longer you do that, the better off you're going to be. Hmm. Yeah, doesn't make sense to me either. You know, when uh, their clients bring up the infinite banking concept, 
the first thing out of their mouth is like, oh my gosh, that's a gimmick. Why would you ever do that? Commissions are high. You should buy a term or you should buy the universal life because it's much better, great, greater rate of return. And, you know, I'm an expert. I've been doing this for years. As a matter of fact, yeah, I've done it for years. My grandfather did it. My daddy did it. His great, great grandfather did it. We've always done it. Yeah, of course you can do that and I can do it for you. But did they bring it up to you? <laughs> no. All right. And do they ever talk about the banking function and who's controlling the banking function in your life? No, they don't. No. And so they make all these exotic plans based on the government, you know, clerks, uh, efforts. And we're going to talk about government clerks in a minute, you know, estate planning, right? And this and that, legacy planning. And <clears throat> I'm not disparaging all of them. I just want to point out some of the hallmarks of the typical financial guru. Number one, they already know. All right, they already know everything. Number two, they want your money in the market. And the longer you keep your money in the market, the greater the probability that you're gonna win. And don't pay high commissions for whole life insurance. And surely don't compare their fees year over year over year for 30 or 40 years. Don't compare the totality of those fees and trading costs to the commission of a life insurance policy. No, don't do that, all right? Um, and besides the uh, life insurance agent, he's not properly licensed anyway. He's just a salesman. Oh, well, wait, you're a financial salesperson, <laughs> right? But the agent, you know, you're gonna disparage him for being a salesperson, right? Um, and getting paid commissions while you're getting paid all the fees. It's like, it's, it's that's the world we live in. It's like double speak, double talk, you know? Don't pay attention to what I'm doing. Listen to what I'm saying. And all these drive-by accusations, innuendos. Um, so you bring up the infinite banking concept. If they get past it's a gimmick, then it's like, of course, I can do that. I can do it for you. You know, yeah. Uh, but never bring up the infinite banking concept. So the uh, I know I'm dating myself, too. When I talk about W.C. Fields, he was a... Black and white uh, movie days, right? Uh, he was a comedian. And in most financial arrangements, especially with investments or life insurance, um, there's three primary individuals, right? There's the entity, the brokerage house, the investment house, the insurance company. And then there's the promoter, the agent, the advisor, and then there's a consumer, right? And it should, in, in a... A good arrangement should be good for everyone. You know, you want the company to be profitable. You want the, the agent, the advisor to be profitable so they're there to service you. And wait, does service even exist in the financial world? Yes, it does. It should. Um, then there's a consumer, right? W.C. Field said, well, the firm made money and the broker made money and two out of three ain't bad. Who do you think that third one that didn't make any money was? But W.C. Fields was referring to you, too. It was you, of course. Thank you, Mr. Financial Guru, for coming by. You look really sharp in that jacket, right? Um, thanks for your input. In this segment, I have the government clerk on as a guest and can't, can't be more excited, right? Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule with all that productivity you're pushing out. <laughs> I'm kidding. Listen, kids, don't forget, the government produces not one product, not one service, profitably at all, nor can they. 
Right. They uh, confiscate private property under the threat of force and violence and then redistributes it. Right. That's your property. And I really wish these guys would be like Texas. You know, Texas meets uh, every two years. Right. So they should do the same, in my humble opinion, in Washington, because there's only two things that are happening whenever they meet. They're eroding your rights and they're separating you from your property through taxation right? or fees or whatever you want to call them. They're all fees or they're all taxes. Well, listen, let's think about this. And I know we're talking about the infinite banking concept. We're talking about how you can become your own banker. So let's talk about banking for a minute. We can go all the way back in history, right? The root word of, uh, I'm told that the root word of a bank is bench because the money changers operated off of a bench outside the churches and the mosque, okay? But I'm not going to go that far back in history for this episode, but I do want to go back to the War of 1812. Have you ever asked a history teacher what was the cause of the War of 1812? Didn't we just separate a few short years earlier, you know, and settled, um, you know, with a war of independence, right? And then became friends. You know, what What? What happened? Oh, I don't know. The, the charter of the first bank of the United States ran out in 1811. Hmm. And we weren't going to uh, reissue the charter. So our big brother, right, who we just separated from a few years earlier um, and made friends again, invaded us, burnt the White House. That's how the White House got its name, right? After the burning, then they whitewashed it. And then it was called the White House ever since. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, we never talk about that in history. And then along comes Andrew Jackson. Uh, and the, the second bank was chartered like 1816 or so, something like that. So that didn't last very long, right? Operating without a central bank. So the second bank of the United States got started and its charter ran out in 1836. And Andrew Jackson, you know, uh, a valiant, man you know fought the bankers and uh oh wait then the the panic of 1837 happened because the second bank of the united states charter ran out in 1836 in the big squabble so uh okay i digress a little bit but thank you andrew jackson we appreciate that no wonder they want to replace him off the 20 dollar bill too don't talk about banking whatever you do Okay, and then along comes the uh, central bank that was established in 1913, right? The Federal Reserve Act, right? Created the Federal Reserve. It's not federal. It's privately owned, and there are no reserves, right? In addition to that Federal Reserve Act, you know, a couple of uh, amendments were passed in 1913. Terrible year for us, the middle class. The uh, senators were appointed by the state houses previous to 1913, and then they become, you know, elected at large, further centralizing power in Washington. And, oh, yeah, that dadgum income tax. Yeah, trying to get the uh, Spanish-American War paid for. Yeah, it's only going to be temporary. It's only going to affect the rich. Right, not you, the middle class. Never, never affects the middle class. It's always the rich. Got to suck it to the rich. Yeah, did you know it was 116 or so years later 
I think uh, I think it was somewhere along 2006, they got rid of a 3% surcharge on telecommunication. So your phone bill, your cell phone bill, had a 3% charge on it, right? Since uh, uh, I think that happened in 1906, 1907, to pay for the Spanish-American War. But look, you just keep your head down and keep working, okay? Don't pay attention to all these little shenanigans that are going on by these government clerks who couldn't make it in the free world. So then we have the income tax, Okay. So, you know, Nelson said it quite often, right? If the government creates a problem, onerous taxation. And then they come back and they create the solution to the problem they created, tax qualified plans. You get a tax deduction today to, you know, diminish your, uh, the taxes you have to pay this year because they're onerous. We're going to cut you a break because we care for you. We don't want you to be dependent upon us in old age and social security. So we're going to give you a tax break today so you can accumulate a bunch of money for your retirement. Problem, owner's taxation, solution, government qualified plan. Don't you feel like you're being manipulated a little bit? They have zero discipline. The government cannot restrain itself. The government has the state, right? Has no ability to restrain itself. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and, and hear them say, oh, well, we've been spending too much money. We're going to, we're going to act like y'all and create a bunch of discipline. They can't and they won't. So they're spending money that we don't have and you know it. And so it's causing inflation, right? And then the onerous taxation. It's like, what are we going to do? Oh, okay. Then the old, all the financial gurus come out and say, well, the only way that you can overcome taxes and inflation is you have to focus on a higher rate of return. You've got to go risk your capital so you can outperform inflation and taxation. Sounds good, right? Is it true? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. You give these guys uh, enough time, and they're going to continue to separate you from your private property. Right? They're going to continue to raise your taxes. right? And if you don't pay, it's under threat of violence and force right? that they'll make you pay. You know, what a $3.5 trillion spending bill? that they haven't read, can't read, won't read. I'm sure some of them can read. They're attorneys, right? So they got to read. But they want to find out where you're spending your $600 at your bank. Oh, and they're looking at the step-up in basis with real estate. They're going to eliminate that, a step-up in basis, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, wait, and they're going to lower the, the uh, state tax exemptions? Yeah, they change all the time. Well, it keeps the legal firms and the legal disciplines, you know, uh, moneyed up pretty deep, you know, rewriting these estate plans every time they turn around and change them. What else are they coming up with? Oh, yeah. The unrealized capital gains. Right earlier, you know, the financial guru said, well, it's a paper loss. It's not a real loss until you sell it. You're going to create the loss if, you know, if you're. What I'm referring to is if you, let's say you have a $100,000 investment value, the markets go down and the statement now says you're, you've, uh, have an unrealized loss of 50,000. So now your account value is 50,000. Well, it, it's only a paper loss. It's not realized until you sell it. Once you sell it, then you've locked in the loss, right? Okay. Like, oh, that's a good thing. That's why I want to put more money into wherever I can potentially lose a ton of it.
So the government clerks up there get together and say, oh, well, we've got to raise more revenue, right? Because we don't have any discipline. And uh, we want to control you. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to tax unrealized capital gains in your portfolio. Well, it, but it'll only affect the rich, right? Just like the income tax originally, you probably could have made about $120,000 in today's dollars without paying any tax. Right? And then the cap was only 7%. I'm going back to 1913. That's on our website and some of our videos. I've talked about it many times. My point here is that... Uh, you know, if they do these things and you give them enough time and they're going to do them, right? Well, the uh, unrealized capital gains isn't only going to affect you, it's going to affect all of us, right? Not just the rich, because then they'll apply it to the mutual funds and the exchange traded funds, right? So just think about that. You put $100,000 in the market, it goes up 150. They're going to charge you income tax on the 50, knowing full well that that market could go right back down to 50. So you paid tax on money that wasn't even realized. What a concept. Yeah, it's good for them, right? Of course. Look, you just keep your head down, keep working, put your money in a long-term growth stock mutual fund and hope it performs enough to outpace the taxation and inflation that they are creating, right? There could be a better way. There may be a better way, right? This idea that you can become your own banker with dividend-paying, life insurance, high premium, high cash value. There's no gimmicks here and there's no deals in the life insurance world. Right. But legitimately, can you build a life insurance policy, the death benefit of which is tax free and have access to this cash value that's accumulating properly tax deferred internally? Yes. That's accessible tax free. Yes. All right. And then I don't have to worry about what the interest rate environment is because I can't control that either. And I don't have to worry about what the market's doing or not doing because I can't control that either. Let's don't even go down the rabbit hole of every market on the face of this planet is manipulated, right? Did you say that, James? Not out loud, right? <laughs> the YouTube algorithm will, you know, run their, the AI will figure out what I'm saying. And so that's why I use a Southern draw, right? Some trick the AI. These guys need to, uh, quit hanging out is uh, what I think. <clears throat> or maybe we need to look around and take action, right? At the you and me level, right? You control the banking function at the you and me level. All right, government clerk, I can, you know, go on and on. And I have, I'm surely I have a few good things to say about you, right? Protecting the borders, right? Or, you know, protecting the God-given rights. Yeah, no, no, no. No, I spoke too soon. I don't have anything good to say. Well, who built the roads, James? Same people that build them now, they'll just do it cheaper, more efficiently, and I'm sure they'll last longer. And all of your cronies and your family members won't become billionaires on your $200,000 a year salary. I digress. I'm talking about the infinite banking concept. You can do something at the you and me level to disengage from this pre-constructed system right, of putting your money into the market. And being at the whim of these government clerks, right? You can do something different. And so this idea of becoming your own banker is worthy of your investigation. And you're not asking for approval. Look, life insurance predates the Internal Revenue Code. 
Right? There's no gimmick here with this life insurance. We're not, we're not practicing in the gray area. We're not making something, you know, to avoid taxes. We're not doing something. It's not a tax loophole for the rich. This is a legitimate, systematic way to accumulate capital that you have access to by guaranteed contract. Wait, oh, the Constitution is a contract. Now, I'm not saying that they won't shred contract law in some time. Give them time. They'll shred everything, right? But until then, you know, we strive to live free and independent. And you can't have freedom without financial freedom. You can't have financial freedom without money, without capital. So what should you do with your capital? You should look at the infinite banking concept. Becoming Your Own Banker by R. Nelson Nash. Building Your Warehouse of Wealth by R. Nelson Nash. Uh, the first book, Becoming Your Own Banker, is now on video or audio, right? And uh, Banking with Life DVD, that's available. How Privatized Banking Really Works, that's available at the at the uh, infinitebanking.org, not infinitebanking.com. Another huckster just trying to, you know, play off the name and, and mimic Nelson's work and not give him any credit. Um, you can go to my website, bankingwithlife.com. Those books are available there. Um, and then Nelson's uh, recorded live presentation is available at the Nelson Nash Institute. It's also available at our website, and we'll give you a discount. So thanks for listening. Thanks for coming, uh, government clerk. And uh, I hope you get everything that you deserve, sir. Everything that you've earned. All right. I'm having fun. (laughs) Okay. All right. We're cooking with grease now, man. All right. In this segment, I have the uh, IBC noisemakers on. Now, these are typically self-appointed experts that uh, have a life insurance license, and they can spell IBC. So whether they've changed careers from real estate gurus or the last housing collapse, you know, they were mortgage brokers, selling loans, selling cheap money, had to change careers or whatever. You know, maybe they had been in the life insurance previously in the life insurance business previously and weren't very good salespeople. And now this is a way to sell a life insurance. I don't know their background. Right. But I can spot their hallmarks. And you you probably can, too. As a matter of fact, I know that you can. And, uh, and let me say that, you know, I'm having fun, right? I'm just pointing out some of the, the things that you see over and over and over, and you just get tired of, you know? Um, and it's Halloween, and it's spooky, and this is spooky, so we're spooking it up, okay? All right. <laughs> yeah. They uh, typically have done it for years. Oh, yeah, I've done this. I've done this for years. The hallmark is... They're, they're an expert. They're self-appointed experts. They have, you know, typically click funnels and all kinds of programs that if you'll buy that, you know, you'll become a millionaire overnight. And um, without a doubt, they rarely mention Nelson Nash or they uh, on purpose avoid mentioning Nelson Nash unless it's just a, a cursory acknowledgement. You know, yeah, we appreciate Nelson bringing this whole infinite banking thing to light for all of us but you know now we can improve it we improve it this is how you make it better this is how you make it better whether it's with the fabulous spreadsheet or a presentation or you know they have some bolt-on things um, there's always an improvement and rarely do you find them trying to get to simplicity Unless they oversimplify, right? There's only one way to do it. 
that's a oversimplification that exists out there as well but regardless of uh who they are the hallmarks are they can do it better they you know spent two months learning from all the experts and now they've you know come up with a book that is really printed uh transcripts of videos that have been out for years and then published and you know don't give anybody credit but they always have to make it better. They promote dependency upon them or their programs or their software, right? Um, they'll mesmerize you with spreadsheets and presentations, whether it's on the whiteboard or wherever. Um, rest assured, they almost invariably violate Nelson's four basic fundamental rules. Right. But they always say things like uh, you only want to do this with the big four insurance companies. Wonder why? Probably because that's who they write for. Right. And maybe there's some household name recognition with the companies that do not like the concept. Right. And they do not like it. If they if you want to find out whether they like the concept or not, just call up the regional vice president of any of the big four companies and ask them their opinion of the big four or the infinite banking concept. Go ahead and ask them. Right. Um, ask the, the people who are inside that know the life insurance companies in the industry. Ask them. They'll tell you. These big companies don't like the infinite banking concept. They think it's a sales gimmick, you know, and they probably are angry because they didn't create it, right? But then again, too, you almost can't blame them because you have all these, you know, people out there promoting all kinds of who knows what, right? And calling it the infinite banking concept. Um, you know, I, I can see why they don't necessarily embrace the idea. And besides, they don't want you exercising your contractual right through that loan provision and, you know, borrowing against the cash values. Ew. You know, they got to rename the program some way, right? Whatever their name is. And they got to uh, boil it down to, you know, a structure, how much on a percentage basis of a premium goes to the base whole life policy and how much goes to a term rider or the PUA or the blended PUA and term coverage component. And uh, they got to squeeze the base down to nothing, right? Because um, you got to have all that cash value in the first year or two. And so they say, well, this is right. 90-10 is right. Or no, no, this is right. 80-20 is right. Or no, no, 70-30, that's right. And then, oh, 60-40 is, that's right. Or 50-50. And 60-40 is wrong, you know, because that's what Nelson did. And then they compare, you know, 90-10 to 60-40. Like, 90% to the PUA is bigger than 60% to the PUA. No kidding. I'm glad you can do some third-grade math there. Um, they illustrate things like, you know, paying four years and then premium offset making the premium or the policy pay for itself. Or they do an RPU, reduced paid up in year seven, eight, nine, or ten. Or, um, you know, or they bring in HELOCs. You know, you go become dependent upon the third-party lender because you don't have any money, right? You don't have any discipline. So go borrow against, uh, I don't know, your house. You know, your number one primary asset, you know, where you live. Borrow against that to come up with a premium and then pay premiums for three or four years. And then, uh, oh, you can't get that loan? Oh, well, we know some lenders. So they'll give you the loan. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, wait, and I get paid there, and I get paid there, and I'm sharing revenue streams with everybody else that's touching all your money. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, and let's complicate the fire out of it too. That's another hallmark. They want to complicate it. You know, well, we got to get a HELOC. So then you can buy the high cash value, you know, life insurance, and then you got to leverage it immediately and put that money to work. And uh, so you go buy some turnkey real estate, right? Because real estate values go one way forever, right? Um, yeah, you got to do that. Or, you know, you got to go start an LLC. You got to go start a company and then do a qualified plan within the company. And then, you know, you're a sole proprietor. So then you can borrow against all of that, the company and trying to avoid taxes. But, you know, they get paid there, they get paid there and they get paid there and then they get paid there, which I'm a capitalist. I'm not opposed to, you know, profits. Um, but dang, how convoluted and how many revenue streams do you want to, you know, drag your customers through? I know how many they want you to drag them through, and that's about zero. Or they come up with, well, you know, yeah, you know, whole life is, oh, that's antiquated. That's all old. And, you know, you got to do this new universal life because it illustrates better. It's going to do better. No, no, it does illustrate better. No question. And it's very profitable for the life insurance company, too. Just like term is very profitable for the life insurance company. Why would that be, James? Well, I don't know. Maybe 97, 98% of all term life insurance never pays a claim. Hmm? You mean somebody outlives the term, the 20-year term, the 30-year term? Then they die natural mortality? Hmm. Yeah, what a concept. I wonder, do you think the insurance companies know how to build policies actuarially? Yeah, yeah they do. Um, you know, I mean, they don't know who's going to die when, but they know how many 55-year-old males are going to die this year, how many 25-year-old females are going to die 10 years from now. Uh, they're, they're very intelligent, <laughs> no question. Um, you know, the best, best actuaries, Nelson used to say, are from Sicily, right? They can tell you who's going to die, how, and when, right? Okay, so we got to convolute things. We've got to complicate things. And, you know, I understand some people are attracted to complexity, right? So if I'm going to, you know, put a put a jacket on or, you know, uh, stand in front of an airplane or, you know, put together a great big spreadsheet with all these moving parts and, you know, drag you through that. And I speak with um, some authority and, you know, I have a life insurance license. I don't know anything about life insurance, but I have a license, right? And I became a life insurance expert because I spent 30 years as a chiropractor, right? Or 25 years in the real estate business or whatever. Um, but, you know, in two months or six months, I'm a, I'm a life insurance expert and have a life insurance license and I know how to run a spreadsheet. You know, and I can put together all these great big, um, complicated, appealing scenarios where you'll be rich quickly right? and always live tax-free. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, go down and borrow in the lowest interest rate environment ever. Money is cheap. Yeah, no question. Here we are in 2021. Money's floating all throughout the economy. You know as well as I do. Go buy an automobile. Go try to have a pool built. Right? Go buy a piece of farm equipment. It's like you can't find it. Oh, the supply chain. But nobody's working. Where's all the money coming from? Yeah, interest rates are going to remain low forever, right? So I want to, and I've said this many times, you know, it's kind of a pet peeve I have. Can you borrow against a life insurance policy? Of course. Can you go use a HELOC? Of course. You know, you can do anything you want with property that you own. 
right? That has a value. You can give it away. You can collateralize it. Um, you can do whatever you want. Should you, all American family, all American business owner, should you go collateralize the most valuable things that you have, your business, your home, a well-designed life insurance policy? Go hawk that. Go collateralize that with a third-party lender and let them control that. Yeah, becoming your own banker. Hmm. So the hallmarks are uh, pretty clear. They violate Nelson's four fundamentals, you know, and I'll get to those. But here's some some real quotes that um, I've seen myself and my clients and prospective clients have sent from these IBC noisemakers, right? A direct quote, I tell my clients that they can keep taking money out and it just doesn't matter because it just keeps making more. Really? <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah. Okay. How about this one? The whole life is a superior savings vehicle, but it is an inferior caps screaming lending vehicle exclamation point i credit nelson for bringing this whole ibc thing to light for all of us cursory acknowledgement right but let's face it the method of borrowing using your loan is archaic and misleading turnkey lending programs for whole life offers lower rates so these other turnkey lending programs, they offer lower rates. Hmm, okay. Plus some um, cash value lines of credit programs even offer the last remaining advantages that policy loans boast. Privacy, simplicity, flexibility, and the ability to roll up rather than pay interest. Man, doesn't that sound educational? I, I don't know what it sounds like, but it, it, it sounds like a red flag, red flag, red flag to me. So it's archaic, really. I have, a, I have an asset that I can collateralize with one signature, two if I'm married or in a community property state. Um, or I can even do it over the phone with certain, within certain limits. That's archaic. And it's still going to sit there and increase in value. What's archaic about that? Privacy? Who knows about that? <laughs> no one. Really? You got something that's even more private than that? Really? Oh, okay. You, you have something simpler than that? Really? This bolt on, you know, to Nelson's great work? You're going to bolt this on and improve it? It's like, yeah. And people buy this. People buy this stuff, right? And then, of course, you know, probably using a direct recognition life insurance company where the dividend is actually and factually reduced on the outstanding loan amount or not paid at all, right? Yeah, yeah. I would rather use work with companies that actually pay a dividend and that are non-direct recognition that don't mess with or lower adjust the dividend when there's an outstanding loan but you know these uh new york companies that uh that are direct recognition right that reduce the dividend when there's an outstanding loan they've trained their agents for years how to 
you know, encourage and, and educate your policyholders how they can go down to the bank, your friend, you need to go cultivate that relationship, right? So you can borrow the bank's money at a cheaper interest rate. So you receive the full dividend, the money's cheaper, and uh, then everything is uh, hunky-dory, right? So the agent with these direct recognition companies, a company that reduces the dividend, they're trained and they, they, and they sometimes they accidentally discover these things on their own, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I've done it. I've, I've educated bankers. It's like, listen, if you have these companies and they're household name companies, life insurance companies, if you have consumers or a consumer of that life insurance that is going to reduce the dividend could be a prospective client for you, Mr. Banker, because you can lend them money cheaper than they can borrow it from the life insurance company. And they'll collateralize that loan with a fabulous asset, dividend paying whole life insurance. And then, of course, I encourage the banker, if you ever have to foreclose on that, right, repossess that policy, call that note, I'm a buyer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So but can you do all that? Sure, I can do all that. Of course. Can I go start an LLC and try to get a bunch of tax, you know, deductions and, and then start a qualified plan and put a life insurance policy in the plan? Yeah, I can. Oh, wait a minute. So I'm going to get a tax deduction now, and I'm not going to forego tax treatment later in a tax-free life insurance policy. The death benefits tax-free. The cash values are accessible tax-free. Tax-deferred um, until you access them through a loan, then they're tax-free. You know, we can complicate anything, and complexity doesn't mean that it's not fragile. As a matter of fact, the more complex something is, the more fragile it is. Right? So we can overcomplicate. Um, and, and we don't have to. And most of the IBC gurus, noisemakers, they love to complicate it or oversimplify it to where this is the only way you do that. 90% to the PUA and 10% to the base where everything looks the same. Everybody looks like a nail and you have a hammer. Oh, it gets old. Um, and I know it gets old for you, too, because as soon as you are exposed to the idea of the infinite banking concept and you click on a few things in your stock to the nth degree. I mean, these guys pay big money to stock you. Right. And uh, God bless them. I guess it works. Of course it works or they wouldn't keep doing it. So um, or you can just say, well, ah, thanks a lot. And read Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. None of that. None of that. None of that came from Nelson Nash. None of it. So this idea of, you know, buying one policy, I have a, I have a quote in here somewhere that the gentleman is, uh, let's see, what do you say? He asked a question. He's like, well, now if I buy my first policy, um, if I put $35,000 in my first policy, can I immediately take a loan for 90% and buy a second policy? And on the second policy, can I immediately take a loan for 90% buy a third policy? And aren't I receiving triple compounding? <laughs> yeah. And you've got three outstanding loans that are compounding against you. Where do you think you got that from? It's called stacking or laddering, right? The uh, IBC noisemaker calls you in year two or three and says, well, now it's time to take a loan. For what? To buy your next policy. For what? Well, so I can get paid. Oh, yeah, he didn't say that. So I'm just saying there's some easy identifiable hallmarks, right? Number one, they're not promoting what Nelson did. They're perverting what Nelson did, right? And they're not giving him credit. They take every opportunity to meticulously 
build an illustration. They'll build them with preferred rating class, right? They'll they'll figure out what the neckline is, and and they'll 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 manipulate the duration of how long you pay a premium, right? To they'll do everything that they can possibly do to make that illustration look the best that it possibly can look, right? And you uh, probably don't know what's going on behind the numbers on that illustration. And then if you compare, you know, when you send them illustrations that you've requested from, you know, a life insurance agent, which this is very old in the life insurance industry, right? You got to beat each other up in their character and you got to beat the company up and then you got to beat the illustrations up. Well, whenever you send them an illustration, they, they probably know how to build an illustration. Of course they do. And so they meticulously massage the numbers on a page to make their illustration look better than the one you own or the one you sent them. I mean, really? So if you make a decision based on numbers on a page, you're probably not going to be happy. And my encouragement is, you know, you get all that you want. Some of this noise you cannot get off of you. Right. So once you can recognize a noise, you should avoid it. Right. But and I understand, too, there's a lot of listeners to this podcast that are, you know, these financial gurus. I understand. And so I'm educating them as well. So, you know, um, it's OK to to listen and learn. OK. And to compare. Another hallmark of the IBC noisemakers. It's always about a rate of return. Always, 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 you know, get a 4% guarantee, which is hogwash, and you get a 5% dividend. You would think that would be a 9% rate of return, right? But if you put 100 in, you built a 90-10, and you only have $89,000 in cash value at the end of the year, what happened to that 9%? 4% guarantee and the 5% dividend, right? I mean, if it, if it sounds weird, it probably is weird. Let's see, the big four, I've already talked about the big four, right? And I always, I love to say it, you know, it's like, the big four, what does that mean? The most square footage of office space that they're not going to need or work from because they've sent all their underwriters to work from home and all the buildings are empty now, but they're still paying for it. They pay the biggest dividend, right? Or they illustrate the biggest dividend and then don't pay it. Are we talking about the waist size of the president, the vice president, and all the regional guys? You know, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the uh, biggest surplus bond that they have on the books you know this the big four has the largest surplus bonds it's like it sounds good doesn't it well you should only do business with the big four and these smaller companies these tier two or tier three or whatever terminology they invent right that sounds good um whatever they use you know say, oh, these smaller companies like like a hundred billion dollar companies a small company right or you know, if ninety ten is good, why can't why why ain't ninety seven three better? Oh well, we can only do that with the small companies. We don't typically do that with the large companies. Yeah, yeah, of course you don't. <laughs> of course not. And and I want to say this that this channel has a lot of material content available at no cost. The Nelson Nash Institute has a lot of content at no cost. But then again. Look, your education, which we all pay for our education, right? just how many mistakes cost you money, right? You're, you're going to pay for your education one way or the other. I want to encourage you to read Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. Read his second book, Building Your Warehouse of Wealth, and then the uh, Banking with Life DVD, 
And then the Nelson's live seminar recorded six and a half hours on uh, DVD. That's available. That's a great foundation to build your education upon. Right? Don't make a decision based on these drive-by innuendos, these exciting, mesmerizing, but confusing presentations. Right? Um, it's worth your time and effort to discover this idea and to vet it to see if it is worthy to be implemented in your life for your benefit and for the benefit of your family. You know, and let me say this. I want to be very encouraging. You know, once you lay the correct foundation, a properly structured policy or a series of policies that will serve you well over your whole lifetime, that's what you want. And you don't want a policy to make in your eight or 11 or 20 or 30, right? You don't want to be forced to go into underwriting every five, 10 years, 15 years. You want well-structured policies that will serve you well over your lifetime. And you don't want to contort a policy to get artificial value in the early years. Early cash value is important, no question about that. But you don't want to sacrifice a future policy year for artificial efficiency so educate yourself and i do want to say too that you know this idea once you once you put your hand to the plow you start paying premium and you're working with competent people that really have your best interests in mind that are knowledgeable that are not practicing on you you know this idea of, of missing out this fear of missing out this fomo goes away you know, everything walking down the street is not an opportunity. Nelson had it exactly right. When you have capital, capital attracts opportunity. You know, these opportunities that are created to attract your capital is bass backwards. That's what Wall Street does. Here, let me create this great opportunity to attract your capital. No, your focus should be on discipline, accumulating capital. Not there. The opportunities will be attracted to you. Because you have the capital. The capital is attracting the opportunities. And the further you go, the idea that you're missing out, that, that, that this fear of, you know, you're missing out on these great, you know, rags to riches, illustrations and examples goes away. It, it goes away because legitimate opportunities present themselves and your ability to identify an opportunity increases and improves. Yes, there's a certain amount of confidence that policies give you, the owner. You know, in closing, I want to say a couple of things, right? None of them, the government clerk, the IBC guru, noisemaker, the financial guru, the financial entertainer, none of them address who or even ask who is performing the banking function. Banking is Banking exists. Banking is. And somebody is going to perform that function and profit very well from it. And it should be you. Right? Nelson said that, and I agree, we should all be in two businesses, whatever it is we do for a living, and then we should finance that. Right? And even if you don't have a business, every home should finance the operation of the home. Right, the homemaker, the home. I mean, that's an entity. It should be run like a business. I'm not saying you shouldn't have fun. You should have a lot of fun, but it should be run like a business. And then that home should be financed. All right. And when the focus is on 
the banking function, you'll wind up with more death benefit than you can get past the underwriter. You'll wind up with more death benefit at natural mortality than you ever sought to purchase. Oh, wait. And you'll affect more than one generation. You'll affect your children, your grandchildren, and even their grandchildren. I'm telling you, right? Well, so you don't have family. Okay. All of these uh, entities and organizations that you love and care about, you can affect them beyond your lifetime. Right? And you can also enjoy tax-free passive income. Right? Okay. I'm not saying it solves all the financial problems, but it sure doesn't complicate any. Right? And it goes a long way to you know, addressing most of them. And so I want to close with this. The four fundamentals that Nelson left us with. And simple? Yes. My gosh, if we need simplicity, it's today. If we ever have needed simplicity. Number one. Think long range, right? Think past next week. Think past your retirement. Think past next year. Think past next month. Think past 10 years from now. Think long range, right? Whenever you have to have access to every dollar you paid in premium, you're not thinking long range. You're not. Number two, don't be afraid to capitalize. I.e., don't be afraid to pay a premium. If you have to have access to everything that you paid in premium in year four or five, you are afraid to pay a premium and you shouldn't operate in fear. Okay. Number three is don't steal the peas. Be an honest banker, right? If you make a loan, have a loan repayment plan. This idea that you can keep taking money out forever and it doesn't matter because it keeps making money is hogwash. Right? If you make a loan, if you request a loan, if you get a loan from the life insurance company, have a loan repayment. The only time that you shouldn't have or you may not have a loan repayment is when you're in passive income and you know full well the death benefit is going to repay the outstanding loan. Other than that, every loan up until then should have a loan repayment or you're not practicing honest banking. All right. All right. And then don't do business with banks outside of a savings and checking. Don't be dependent upon a third-party lender. If you have to borrow money, if you have to collateralize your life insurance policy with a third-party lender, you're violating that. Number five, rethink your thinking. You know, Nelson added the fifth one, you know, a couple of years before he graduated, and uh, rightly so, right? Because all of this, the financial uh, entertainers, the financial gurus, the government clerks, these IBC noisemakers are promoting flawed thinking. They're promoting and violating every one of these four fundamentals. Their flawed thinking is continuing, and that's what they're promoting. And if you buy into that, you can't hardly get it off of you, right? Okay, rethink your thinking. I like it. I uh, have a quote, you know, it's attributed to Thomas Edison. Did he say it? I have no idea. I like the quote. I want to share it with you. 5% of the people think, 10% of the people think they think, and the other 85% would rather die than think. You're the top five. Act like it. Okay. Listen, I had a lot of fun here. You know, I know I'm making fun of uh, characters and personalities and philosophies and nobody individually, everybody in general that promotes the noise, right? So 
don't be offended. As a matter of fact, if you are offended, you're probably a promoter. You've self-identified, right? And I appreciate the listeners and everything that you share with me. I appreciate the questions and uh, keep listening. Keep sending the questions. You know, I don't know everything. I'm subject. To, I'm teachable. What a concept. I am teachable. So if you can educate me, by all means, please educate me. I just want to say thank you for listening. I had fun. I hope you enjoy it. And avoid the noise if you can. Identify the noise and sidestep them quickly. It'll save you time. It'll save you money. And it'll save you a lot of heartache. My opinion. All right. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.